0: Tonight's scripture is from Matthew chapter 27, verses 55 to 61, and chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arithmethea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away.
1: Thank you um, for allowing me to experience <clears throat> the last six weeks. Um, thank you for your graciousness and um, letting me try something new and uh, allowing me to learn along with you. I have definitely learned a lot, and it's been a really sweet time, so thank you. Over the last five weeks, we have looked closely at how Jesus interacted with women in ways that elevated them in their society. While some of these examples uh, may seem small by today's standards, uh, in the New Testament era, there were significant strides for the advancement of women. For example, we saw Jesus affirming women's value and belonging in his interaction with a Samaritan woman. With the woman who anointed him with oil, we see him defending the function of women in his ministry. We see Jesus treating women with compassion when he heals the woman with the hemorrhage. In his parable of the widow, he upholds women with fierce faith, and he allows his friends, Mary and Martha, to deeply influence his earthly ministry. During a time when most women were little more than property, and the majority of women had little uh, education and few rights, Jesus never needed a man to speak for a woman. He entered women's spheres and he invited them into his. He engaged with them holistically as physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual human beings. Matthew tells us that many women, named and unnamed, were witnesses to Jesus' death and resurrection. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who was probably the mother of Jesus, and the mother of Zebedee's sons are the ones named in this gospel who were present. And Matthew emphasizes that Jesus was given great personal care and attention from these women who had followed him from Galilee to care for his needs. Little did they know Their most attentive and instinctive maternal care would be needed for the Messiah to complete his ministry on earth. The resurrection story is full of strong, beautiful, courageous, feminine imagery. In the resurrection story, Jesus is the conqueror over death, but before he conquers death, Jesus is in the womb or the belly of the earth for three days. We know that birth is all about pain mixed with uncertainty and expectancy. Matthew tells us these women steadfastly witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. In their uncertainty, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus were the last to leave his body after it was laid to rest in the tomb. And we, we will see or we have seen, and their expectancy. They are the first to arrive to the tomb after the Sabbath. It is exactly how Jesus said it would be. His death and resurrection would be like birth. Just a few days earlier, prior to his crucifixion at the Passover, Jesus warns his disciples in John 16, 20, you will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time for grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away. The disciples' grief of Jesus' crucifixion was that like that of a birthing woman? But their grief gives way to subsequent joy at his resurrection, the same experience felt by a mother when her child is born. And this passage in John warning the disciples that his death would be like a birth is an echo of the prophecy in Isaiah where God describes himself as a woman giving birth, struggling crying out for ultimate restoration of his people. Isaiah forty-two fourteen says, For a long time I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out. I gasp and pant. In the childbirth metaphor, we feel grief, fear, and the possibility of defeat. We feel the grief, fear, and possible defeat in the narrative of the resurrection. I grew up in the home of a midwife. My mother birthed me at home, and that started her nearly 40-year career of catching babies. As a child, there were always pregnant women in and out of our house, and often they would give birth at our house. On purpose, not on accident. (laughs) It was just the normal way of life for me. I had the privilege of helping my mom and assisting in several births. And I noticed that every birth experience was different. You might think it would be the same anatomically. Things happen in in a sequence. But every baby born has his or her own unique birth story how the mother's labor began, how she handled pain, how big was the baby, how much support did she receive, how long did each stage of labor last? These were the variables, but no matter the variables or how hard or painful, every single mother received her baby with overwhelming joy. God's ultimate power and intense love for His people is that like a mother giving birth through excruciating pain of his son, his son's body being stretched, torn, broken, and bleeding. God joyfully joyfully restores us back to himself. When looking for examples of Jesus' followers, we often highlight that the select 12, the disciples, were comprised only of men. However, in the resurrection story, women disciples are just as courageous and devout. It was women who provided continuous presence, following Jesus from Galilee, witnessing his crucifixion, being steadfast in his burial. They mourned his death, they prepared spices for his body, and they returned to the tomb on the dawn of the first day of the week. The culmination of Jesus' life on earth is full of their attentive love and care. These women did not know that in their faithfulness, they were participating with God in the rebirth of humanity, including the rebirth of his feminine image. Themselves, women abiding in Christ would be free to love, to worship, and move throughout the Christian faith with only Christ as her authority. Women were the first to experience the personal presence of the risen Lord. They were first to perceive the fullest power available to them through the cross. No longer does, does a woman have to be viewed through the lens of Eve's curse. A woman can now claim the full righteousness of Christ. Verse 8 says, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus meets them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Mark explicitly notes that Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene in Mark 16:9. "Because Mary Magdalene was the faithful attending midwife to God's ultimate labor of love, she is the indisputable link between Jesus' life, His death and His resurrection." So then, Mary becomes the apostle to the Apostles. She is a qualified and reliable witness to the gospel. In their day, women could would not have been considered competent witnesses in Jewish courts. But God did not choose these women for their influence. He chose them for their faith. Their presence in the resurrection narrative is not to impress us or even to convince the first century readers. Why are they there? For the community of Christians to cherish women who have great faith as indispensable in the ministry of the church. So my question today to you is, do we view women as indispensable in our church body? Hopefully your first answer is a definitive yes. I encourage you to be honest with yourself about your own gender biases Perhaps you love to see a woman fully express her God given gifts in the church body. But when it gets risky or uncertain or a little complicated, whom do you default? Many Christians, including myself, default to the person we connect with power. Be honest what does that person look like for you? What does their face look like? What is their skin color? Women can lead in faith as well as men, and sometimes they are placed in situations in which they must lead men. For instance, in every gospel account of Jesus' death and resurrection, the male disciples are either absent, hiding, or skeptical of the resurrection. God chose these women to teach us that his feminine image holds half his voice. They are there to remind us that we not only hear God from women, but through women. If we truly believe Calvary is a place of rebirth, where there is no longer Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, as Galatians 3.28 says, We must reform our images of women in the church. We must model the church after Jesus, where women share spiritual authority as equal members in our faith community. We must, like Jesus, begin to value women as indispensable members of the body of Christ.
2: Thank you, Paige. I've learned a great deal from you this winter. When Joseph Stalin wanted to show the world his vision for communism, he decided to create a new city. He called it a Nova Hutta, and it started in Poland. And in this new city, he put all the best Soviet schools, all the best Soviet hospitals, all the best Soviet Gymnastic centers and everything else. So that if you ever wondered what the vision for communism was, you could go to Nova Hutta and see it acted out in that community. Well, Jesus was inaugurating a very different kind of vision a vision of a new kingdom. And in that new kingdom, he was creating a new community. And the way that he modeled for the world, the vision of that new community, was in the way he gathered people around them and the way that he treated them. He had a very radical vision that was far different from the highly rigid society of Rome. And Page has has done a great job of reviewing what we've been thinking about all, all winter so far, is that every opportunity that our Lord had, he, he he took to demonstrate in his action that women were full partners in the new community. And again, that does not seem so shocking sometimes to us, but again, the, the context of the day, it would have been revolutionary. Well, the gospel writers uh, have a similar uh, passion. And so they arrange their material to communicate this uh, This powerful truth that women are full partners in the new community. And they especially spend the last part of each gospel story uh, trying to to show how important women are in the faith community. And I spent some time this week going back over uh, the last week of the Lord's life and, and how the men responded and how the women responded. And as you probably know, if you've been around for a while, it wasn't a great week for the guys. Okay? Joseph of Arimathea, he gets points for offering the the tomb. But beyond that, no, no, no Hall of Fame moments here. Peter denies Jesus three times, runs away. Judas betrays Jesus, hangs himself. James and John argue over who will get to sit next to Jesus in the new kingdom. Peter, James, and John fall asleep when Jesus says, please stay with me and pray. Peter cuts off the servant of the high priest's ear. And when Jesus dies, either no disciples or one disciple is there along with the women. But the women are last at the cross and first at the tomb. Now, what are we supposed to learn from this? I, I, I don't think that the gospel writers want to demean the faith of, of men. I think they're just trying to say in every way possible that women are full partners in the new community. They're trying to cast a vision for what this new community looks like, where the rigid patriarchal structures of the system around them is totally overturned. And Galatians 3.26, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female uh, in the body of Christ. All are one in Christ. Now, there's a good question that comes up at this point, and and that is, but wait a minute, don't the texts in Paul uh, contradict this? Uh, When Paul talks about the role of women in churches and home, doesn't he reflect the more patriarchal, Uh, structures of the ancient culture. And that's a very important question. Uh, Good Christians disagree on whether those texts apply to certain cultural situations and therefore are no longer applicable today or whether they're normative for all time. Uh, I covered that uh, in a series some years ago. We decided not to cover those today. We decided more to focus on the teachings of Jesus. But every teacher has to make a decision when you confront a question like this. And the decision is this. Am I going to start with Jesus and then make sense of Paul? Or am I going to start with Paul and then make sense of Jesus? Now, I think it's all inspired. It's all authoritative. It's all God's revelation. But you got to start somewhere. And so Paige and I felt that it was best to start with Jesus. I don't know why the women were so close to him at the end, why they hung in so well. My hunch is, especially after hearing so many of you share stories with me, is that Jesus had set them free. They'd found something in the love of Jesus that they'd not found anywhere else. And so you could not tear them away from the cross. And you could not keep them away from the tomb. Jesus healed them. He set them free. And as we were looking at this this week, I was reminded of a, of a story from the legends of King Arthur. Okay? And I'll kind of wrap up with this, and then I want to just take a minute and talk about Lent. King Arthur is riding through the forest when he is surprised by a strange knight. And the knight draws his sword to slay the king. But Arthur protests, I am not armed, strange knight. Killing me this way is against our code of honor. So they fought differently in those days than uh, they, they do today. The knight relented and made the king promise that he would return one year later. And the king's life would be spared if he brought back the answer to this riddle. What do women want? So King Arthur rides back to his castle and tells Sir Gawain, the most handsome knight in the kingdom we are told, that they must find out what women want or he will die. So Sir Gawain and King Arthur ride all over the kingdom asking women what they want more than anything. At the end of the year, King Arthur knows that he does not have the right answer and that he will shortly die. But then... An old sickly woman, and this is the story, I don't like it particularly, but an old sickly woman covered with warts, just like in a Disney movie, and reeking of a foul older named Dame Ragnall told the king, I alone have the answer to the riddle, but I will only give it to you if you give me Sir Gawain as my husband. The king refused, but Sir Gawain said that he would marry Dame Ragnall and save the king's life. King Arthur agreed and asked Dame Ragnall, what do women want more than anything? Freedom, she said. King Arthur met with the strange knight exactly a year after their first encounter and told him the answer to his riddle. The strange knight was furious because this king had answered the riddle correctly. And then he let the king go. Soon Sir Gawain married Dame Ragnall as promised. And as the story goes, he could hardly bear to look at her so he closed his eyes on his wedding night and kissed her on the forehead. But as he kissed her on the forehead, she was transformed into the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen and they kissed all night. Um a little edit here for the Well, when the sun began to rise, Dame Ragnall said, "My beauty will not hold, sir, so you must choose." Either have me beautiful by day when the world can see, or ugly by day and beautiful at night for you alone. Sir Gawain said, No, my dear. You have the freedom to choose for yourself. And given what she desired the most, the curse was lifted forever. Forever. And Dame Ragnall's beauty returned permanently and they lived happily ever after. (laughs) I love that story because I think it's such a beautiful picture. What I think Jesus wants to give all of us is freedom, spiritual freedom, spiritual freedom, freedom in Christ. Now, Lent starts Wednesday night, and it's also Valentine's Day. Now, I can't think of a more romantic way to spend an evening (laughs) than for me to put ashes on your forehead (laughs) and tell you you're going to (laughs) die. But that's the way the calendar falls, so we're celebrating Thursday. Um, So... But as as we've gone through, a number of you have been so gracious to share your stories. And this series, more than any other story or any other series that we've taught since I came to All Souls, has stirred up a lot of stuff and a lot of wounds. Um, and I've not known exactly what to do about that. But I've decided to change the direction of the Lenten series this year and just, just look at Jesus's, healing stories and just sit with Jesus and see where that that takes us and 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 there's two reasons why there's a couple reasons why one is because I I feel like a lot stirred up another is there's a lot of good stuff going on uh, in the the healing prayer on uh, the Monday night group and in other places across the body and it just seemed like this might be a time for us to to take a good look at this. So here's what I'd like you to do before you come Wednesday night at 6, child care provided. Uh, I'd like you to pray about where do I need healing? It can be physical, it can be emotional, it can be spiritual, it can be something social. Where do I really want to invite God to heal And you think, well, Lent's a dumb time to do this, Shouldn't we do it in Pentecost. Well, I thought that too. Good point. Um, But part of what Lent is, is taking away the things that hinder healing. Lent is kind of stepping aside, removing the, the things that keep the healing power and grace of Christ flowing through your life. So you might just think of one thing that you could just set aside for a while that might, Allow Christ's healing power to flow more powerfully in you. This sounds silly this year, but for me, it's nonfiction. I am obsessed with podcasts, with textbooks, with blogs. I, I just listen to them all the time, and so uh, I, I'm not going to till till Easter. Uh, then I'm going to have an orgy of podcasting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I just felt that, that, uh, that all the stuff I was reading and all the newspaper it just was key, just filling up too much space. And so um, I'm going to fast from that. So you think about what you might fast from.